You're listening to an audio sermon from Redemption Church in Olds, Alberta. It is our prayer that through this ministry, we will see lost people saved, saved people matured, and mature people multiplied all to the glory of God. For more information about our church, or to let us know how we can be praying for you, visit us online at www.redemptionolds.com or send us an email at info at redemptionolds.com. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2. We're just about done. One more series in Colossians, and then we'll spend some time this summer uh, in the Psalms. Um, it's not summer yet, could, could you tell? Um, not quite there. Um, hopefully, hopefully it doesn't go hotter. Um, but uh, Colossians chapter 2, and uh, if you don't have a Bible on you, there's one in the pew in front of you. Grab it. Um, we want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Um, I have nothing for you. Uh, I come looking to God's word, that God's word would teach us together. And, uh, and if you don't have a Bible at home or one you can read easily, take this one. We'd love for you to have it. It's our gift to you. Um, but as we kind of prepare to think about Colossians 2, looking at verses 16 to 19, um, I want you to imagine that you were a runner, like a track racer. Since you were young, you can remember getting up early to train, and then after school, you'd come home, and rather than going to play video games, or rather than going out with your friends, you went to the track. You met your coach there to race, to run. You love McDonald's. You love macaroni and cheese. You don't remember the last time you had either of them, because every meal is carefully crafted to fuel your body for running. That's what matters. Every part of your life is focused on this. And you don't just run a lot. You run well. You are fast. You have school championships, provincial championships, even national championships. But none of that matters. What your eyes are set on is Olympic. You want that Olympic gold medal. And now you've made it. You're there. On the Olympic starting line. Family and friends there to watch the world watching on TV. And you wait in your starting position. Your muscles tense. Finally, the gun goes off and you explode into motion out onto the track. To your surprise and delight, you are in the lead. The competition is fast, but you are faster. And you hold your pace through the race. You're sweating. You're breathing hard. Your muscles begin to ache. But this is what you train for. This is what it's all about. There's no letting up. You round the last corner. The finish line is in sight. You're in the lead. And you hear from behind you, Hey, you're in my lane. You're disqualified. What? How can this be? I crossed over the... Line, you're so crushed, you begin to let up. Those furious, driving, pounding steps toward the finish line turn into a last few heartless, lifeless steps as you come to a stop and fall to your knees and one by one, the other runners go flying past you. They cross the line and meet their coaches and are celebrating and your coach comes running out to you on the track. What happened? Why did you stop? Well, what? I was in the wrong lane. I, I was disqualified. I crossed the line. And your coach says, what do you mean? Where did you get that idea? Well, the other runner, he, 
He called out to me. He told me that I was in his lane. And your coach says, no, you weren't in his lane. He was in your lane. You're not disqualified. He was. That's the the picture of what's happening in Colossae, that Paul's heart is just breaking over uh, as he writes these next few verses. Don't let yourself be disqualified. Don't let other people judge you, disqualify you, condemn you, who have no right to do so. Last Sunday was one of the most fun sermons I've had the privilege of preaching for a long time. Um, Beautiful passage, verses 11 to 15, just unpacking the, the glorious reality of new life in Christ and all that that looks like. Death to the power of sin, life and the resurrection of Christ, full forgiveness of all of our sins and, and the participation in the victory of Christ and, and, and the, the fullness that we have in here, in him. Uh, if you weren't here last week, you missed out. It was, it was great and we, we celebrated, I mean, celebrated communion together. We closed singing glorious day and people were clapping and, and moving. We came to that line. I ran out of that grave and it was shouted out and rightfully so. I mean, this, this is like winning the lottery. This is like Olympic gold, this new life that we have in Christ. There's nothing greater. And that's why Paul is so desperate that nobody take it from you. That nobody distract you from it, disqualify you from it. Last week was new life in him. Uh, This week is holding fast to him. Hold on, he says. Keep going. Don't be disqualified. Let me read this passage for us. Colossians 2, starting in verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food, And drink with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These things are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. Would you pray with me? Father, would you soften our hearts this morning? Lord, would you give us eyes to see your truth? Lord, you know how easily distracted, how easily discouraged and dissuaded we are, how how easily we are pulled away from Christ and looking to other things. Lord, help us to see again. Help us to see the glory of the new life we have in Christ to fix our eyes on him. Lord, that we might run faithfully. Father, I pray for my words this morning as I preach. God, if there's anything that I have prepared, anything that I'm about to say that is not of you, that those words would just fall to the ground and be forgotten but God, that your word would go forth, that it would be your truth and you would, as you promised, not let your word return void, but it would do its work in us, God. Um, We give ourselves to you. We pray these things now in Jesus' name, amen. So we've talked along the way about these false teachers in Colossae and 
and the havoc that they've been causing. This is apparently one of the main reasons that Paul felt driven to to write to them and and specifically to remind them of the the supremacy of of Christ. Remember chapter 1, verses 15 and following, the, the Christ who is the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things in him, all things hold together. Um, He's the one who will reconcile all things to himself. The wonder of this this fullness that we have in Christ. And then now in verses 16 to 23, he kind of turns directly to the false teachers. Now he's taking shots specifically. 16 to 17, uh, he accuses them of legalism. Uh, 18 and 19, he accuses them of mysticism. Uh, And then 20 to 23, he accuses them of asceticism. Um, This morning, we're just going to look at the first two as we kind of work through these. And uh, starting verses 16 and 17, Paul says the Colossian believers, um, he says, reject legalism. Reject legalism. Don't let anyone judge you, he says. The word there is the idea of condemn, disapprove, criticize you based on Legalism. Well, what is legalism? Well, simply put, legalism is adding laws to the gospel. It's adding laws to the gospel. It's telling people that that trusting in Jesus is good, but it's not quite enough. We don't usually say this in words. We just say this by pressure. There's more. If you want to be saved, you have to also do these things. You have to follow our added laws as well, the laws of men that have been kind of piled on. Paul's pretty specific about what was going on in Colossae. Um, don't let anyone judge you, first with regard to food and drink, and then festivals or new moons, and then Sabbaths. Some people will say there's, there's more than just Jewish legalism going on here, and that might be so, um, but at very least there is some Jewish legalism going on. They're looking back at the Old Testament and bringing those things forward. These are explicitly um, Jewish references. Food and drink is talking about the the dietary laws of the Old Covenant. Festivals such as Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. New moons. Um, Numbers 10.10 talks about every new month they're to to blow the trumpets and to offer sacrifices and they operate on a lunar calendar. Every new moon, every new month. And then the Sabbaths. is mandatory rest and worship of God on the seventh day of the week. Sorry, that was yesterday. You missed it. Um, And Paul says, don't let anyone judge you based on these things. It appears as though these false teachers in Colossae were doing that. They were telling the the believers there uh, that they had to obey the Old Testament laws. If you want to have the fullness of Christ, well, you need to celebrate the Passover. You need to do it right. You need to follow these rituals. You need to keep the Sabbath. You need to watch out the uh, the, the food laws. Um, If you aren't doing these extra laws, then, then you're missing out. You don't have all of Christ. It's amazing over the years how little Satan's strategies actually change. And he repackages them a little bit, but it's the same old stuff. These groups exist today. There's a large, sadly growing movement called the Hebrew Roots Movement. There's the Seventh-day Adventists. There are numerous just kind of misled Christians who feel the weight of these Old Testament laws and begin 
obeying them themselves and putting them as a burden on others. Paul says, no. No, don't do it. Don't go there. Verse 17 is his reason. These things are a shadow of the things to come. The substance is Christ. Now, I think that's the most compelling reason for me to, to think that really this is primarily a Jewish legalism. Paul would not have said that about pagan rituals, but it's true uh, about the Jewish laws. The Old Testament laws are a shadow. They're a shadow. That was their purpose. Now, they're, they're, they weren't wrong or, or evil by any means. They, they had a purpose, but that purpose has been served, right? So Paul says they're a shadow pointing forward to Christ. Imagine you're sitting in the park and you're waiting for a friend to join you. And uh, maybe you're looking down, you're reading a book or something as you wait. And, and you see beside you on the ground, the shadow. Well, it doesn't give you all the details. You can't see everything. But you can see the basic shape. The outline is there. You can recognize the shadow of your friend. And, and seeing the shadow, you know for sure he's there. He's come. It's not the shadow that you're waiting for. It's the substance. It's the thing that casts the shadow. The shadow is pointing to. And so even as you read through the Old Testament and watch the, the faith of Israel, we have to understand they were always shadows. They were always pointing forward. It was never about those laws. The Old Covenant was not a covenant of works. They weren't saved by jumping through these hoops. They were saved by their faith and their faith was put on display as they walked in obedience. The law was always a shadow. They didn't know the name of Jesus. They didn't have all the details. They couldn't see it clearly, but, but the basic form of it was there. And so they're waiting, looking forward as they see this shadow, knowing that the Savior, God's salvation, would come. Paul actually already started this conversation um, back in verses 11 and 12. Remember how he, he talked about circumcision? This picture of this, this sinfulness of humanity right at the, the core of, of who we are and, and God's promise that he would remove that sinful nature. He linked that to our crucifixion in Christ. It was pictured in our baptism. That's the, the true circumcision. It was never about the, the cutting off of the foreskin. It was about the removal of our sinful nature. It's the same with the festivals. Passover is probably the clearest. There are seemingly endless connections from the Passover to Christ. I mean, you could just dive into that so deep. The, the Lord said um, that he was going to kill every firstborn son in every household. And so they were to go out and find a young male lamb, a lamb with no spot or blemish, and they were to kill it. They would take the blood from the sacrifice and put it on the, the top of the door frame and the door posts, making the sign of a cross. The Lord said, everyone who shelters in that house, everyone who takes shelter under that shed blood, the angel of death would pass over. It would not kill the firstborn in that home. That was God saying, this is how I rescue you from Egypt. He's pointing forward. That's what he used to save them 
out of their enslavement to bring them through the Red Sea, which we're told is a picture of baptism, the end of their old life in Egypt and the beginning of a new life eventually leading to the promised land. Passover is a shadow of salvation in Jesus. It was God saying, this is how I'm going to do it. This is how I rescue my people. Here's the the general shape of it. We're under the curse of death for our sin. But God would send his perfect sacrifice, the sinless, spotless lamb of God, and he would die in our place, and everyone who sheltered in him would be saved. So 1 Corinthians 5, 7 says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. The same is true of the Sabbath. A lot of Christians today still wrestle with that. Should we keep the Sabbath? What do I do with the Sabbath? It never quite makes sense. I mean, it's one of the Ten Commandments, right? Well, it is. The Ten Commandments are part of the Old Covenant. Right? The Ten Commandments were part of God's covenant, His contract, His agreement with Israel through Moses. We're not under that covenant anymore. We're in a new covenant. Now, Every single one of those Ten Commandments is repeated again in the New Testament except the Sabbath. It's not commanded again. Why? Why the Sabbath left out? Well, what was the meaning of the Sabbath? What was the purpose of the Sabbath to begin with? The the book of Exodus, after it gets through the the story of, of Moses and the the rescue of Egypt or of, of Israel um, has 12 chapters of commandments and laws and instructions on how to build the tabernacle and offer the sacrifices. And at the end of all of that is Exodus 31:13. You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you through your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. It's a sign, much like a shadow, right? The shadow points to the substance. The sign isn't about the sign itself. It's about where it's pointing. Sabbath was a sign pointing to the reality that it is God who sanctifies. So God is saying, yes, cleanse yourselves this way, follow these laws, build the tabernacle, do these things, but every week stop and remind yourselves that you can't make yourselves holy, that by your action and your obedience, you're not sanctifying, making yourselves holy. I, the Lord, do that. He's telling them you're saved by faith. That's what the Sabbath was about. It was this perpetual reminder that you can't make yourself holy, but but God does that. The Sabbath was a shadow of rest in Christ. It's about Jesus. We don't keep the Sabbath um, the same way because Jesus is our Sabbath. We rest in Him. The food laws. People get it all in a dither. Should we not eat pork? I really like bacon. What do we do? Maybe the food laws were given for some sanitary reasons that we should still follow them. Maybe it was because that that's a, a healthier way to eat and so it's not law anymore, but we should still do that. I don't know. And you see these, these diets coming out. It's like a Christian diet plan, follow the food laws. No. No, the reason that, that the food laws came into being is, is God called his people Israel 
to separate themselves, to be distinct from all the other nations, to be a different kind of nation. And what they ate was just this visible, obvious way that they were different, that they were unlike every other nation around them. But in Mark 7, verses 18 to 21, Jesus says this, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that, that whatever goes into a person from the outside, he's talking about your food, he's talking about food laws here, whatever goes into the person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not into his heart, but into his stomach, and it is expelled. And thus he declared all foods clean. That's, that's a Holy Spirit commentary. In case you missed it, God declared all foods clean right there. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, and adultery. So Jesus says, you don't get it. It wasn't ever about food. It wasn't about people being set apart by what they ate. It was about you being a holy nation. It's not about the stomach, ultimately. It's about the heart. It was a picture. It was a shadow. And that was always the case. It was to remind them that food laws were a shadow of holiness in Christ. Now that Jesus has come, the food laws are irrelevant. We're done with that. That's been put off. That old covenant has has come to an end. and, and, And the true people of God, Jews and Gentiles alike gathered in Christ, are not set apart by staying far away from pork. They're set apart by staying away from sin. It was always a shadow pointing forward to Christ. Now, picture this. You're sitting in the park. You're waiting for your friend. And you see that shadow come up on the ground beside you. And you know it's him. You see his outline. You can tell he's wearing a hat, carrying a bag. And and, uh, he stands beside you. And rather than turning from the shadow to talk to your friend, um, you begin to talk to the shadow. You try to shake hands with the shadow. Now, some of you watch Peter Pan. And you're like, yeah, that's how it works. No, that's cartoon. Get that out of here. No. You don't talk to the shadow, right? If you sat there and started conversing with the shadow, your friend is, he's going to call a doctor. Like, you're going to end up in Pinocchio. That's not how this works. It's craziness. And so, that's what Paul is saying these false teachers are like. They're judging people. They're condemning people for moving away from the shadow and turning to Christ, when in reality, it's they that are missing the point. It's they who have been disqualified. That's the insanity. You aren't the one running in the wrong lane. They are. Notice the therefore at the start of verse 16. Pat yourself on the back if you already saw that. The reason that's so crazy, the reason it's so absurd to, to remain on the shadow, to focus on festivals and, and foods, is because of what we talked about last week. It's not in the festivals and foods that we have new life. It's in Christ. It's all in Him. In Him we have death to our sin and resurrection, life in His power and full forgiveness and complete victory. Therefore, don't let anyone judge you because of these shadow things. Christ is what we need. And we need to pay attention because we still see this today. We see it in these 
Hebrew roots movements and things like that. Maybe you aren't tempted by dietary laws, by Sabbath law. Maybe you are. And I hope looking at this, you've been set free from that. But legalism takes many forms. I was reading this last week. Maybe you've heard this young lady who's been in the news from Edmonton who's recently left a cult. And I'll just admit, I'm only hearing her side of the story. Maybe there's a different picture. But from what she says, it sounds terrible. This, this so-called church where the elders have mandated everything. Dresses only for women, no, no pants, no shorts, no haircuts, no public school, no associating with anyone else outside the church, rule after rule after rule, right down to the details of their intimate marriage life. Endless rules and control, taking God's word and adding all kinds of human laws to it. It's legalism. And it's helpful maybe to to see it in that stark of a context. But we're tempted to this. We're tempted to take our own conscience issues and treat them as if they are laws that everyone ought to obey. If you were a true Christian... You would not watch PG movies. We stay G. That's what Christians do. That's the law. That's the line. You would only sing the proper old hymns, not these new songs. Or you would only sing the new glorious songs, not those stuffy old hymns. You have to homeschool. Homeschooling is Christian. If you're not doing that, it's sin. You have to read this translation of the Bible, not that translation of the Bible. On and on it goes. And we take our personal convictions and we begin to spread them out and make them laws. Now we have to be careful here. Obedience to Christ is a good thing. If there's no obedience to Christ, something is drastically wrong. The problem is when we begin to replace Christ and his commands with our own. We begin to believe that God loves me more because of my extra laws. My my forgiveness from God, my my position as as a beloved child of God rises and falls based on these extra laws and rules that I keep. We take our eyes off of Christ. We begin to look to ourselves. We ought to be looking to Him, resting in the incredible fullness that we have in Christ. By grace, grace alone. And then it's out of that, out of this wonderful gratitude that we have toward Christ that that obedience just begins to pour out willingly and, and joyfully. So yes, walk in obedience, but not legalism. Reject legalism. Don't let anyone condemn you because of their extra laws, especially not Old Testament practices. Paul moves from there um, to say then reject mysticism. Look at verses 18. Um, We'll bump into the first part of 19. Paul writes, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head. He says, let no one disqualify you. I don't think that's Substantially different from let no one judge you. I think that's a stylistic change here. 
And then he gives these three things that, that these false teachers were apparently pushing in Colossae. Asceticism and the worship of angels and visions. Asceticism is a tough one. That, that word's a bit of an interpretive choice by the ESV. Um, NASB has self-abasement. NIV has false humility. Um, the, the word there in the Greek is simply the word for humility, which is always a good thing, but in this context, it's obviously a negative thing, and so we're kind of wrestling with what was their humility that was negative. It was some kind of a false humility. It was some kind of, of facade or front. Um, it's dishonest. And then angel worship. Again, we don't know exactly what was going on there, but this is obviously very problematic. However, that's happening. Um, Jesus, rebuking the devil in the wilderness, says, Matthew 4.10, um, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship and serve the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Um, we, don't, we don't worship angels. There is no other being um, created or um, f- sorry, physical or spiritual being that deserves worship. Only God. God alone gets our worship. And then finally, I think what both of these are kind of driving toward, um, visions. They have this false humility and this worship of angels. And and I think coming out of that, then they're bragging, they're going on and on about their visions, the things that they have seen. These revelation, this knowledge that they have supposedly straight from God and, and no one else has access to it. This is, this, is, this is my personal revelation. More than scripture, more than the teaching of the apostles, they have their own personal revelation. And you can just feel the power of that. How intimidating that would be for the, the lesser Christians. Well, you just have the Bible, that's it? Oh, we have, we have direct line to God. How do you argue with someone who claims direct revelation from God? You don't know what I know. I've seen these visions. I have access to God in a way you don't. And again, the the details have changed through the ages. The packaging's been updated, but this is Satan's same old tricks. This is mysticism. There's a problem in the church in Colossae. It's been problematic in the church through church history, and it's a problem in the church today. Mysticism um, removes thinking and replaces it with feeling. Okay? Stop, stop thinking, stop using your intellect and just feel it. It doesn't ask, what do we know about God? What is true about God? It asks, what do you feel about God? It doesn't ask, what has God said in, in clear black and white in his word? It asks, what do you feel God to be saying? I don't often do this, but the Oxford English Dictionary um, gives a pretty helpful definition. It's a little heady. Pay attention. Mysticism is the belief that union with or absorption into the deity or the absolute or spiritual apprehension of knowledge inaccessible to the intellect may be obtained through contemplation and self-surrender. Okay, so, so they're talking broader than just Christian, this, but this whole idea that, that union with or absorption into deity or the absolute or whatever it is you're looking for um, or spiritual apprehension of knowledge inaccessible to intellect may be obtained through contemplation and self-surrender. So mysticism says, you want to be one with God? 
You want to know God? You want to have spiritual knowledge, intimate knowledge with God? You don't get there by your mind. You don't get there by thinking and studying. You get there by feeling. You get there by quiet meditation, by emptying your mind, giving yourself over. Not looking outside of ourselves at objective truth, truth that is there for all people to see, but by looking inside of ourselves for subjective truth, my truth. This is what I feel to be true. You may have seen this without even recognizing it. It can be so deceitful. It comes in so sneaky. Incredibly popular book today, um, Jesus Calling, Sarah Young. I, I know you've seen it. It's in every bookstore, Christian or otherwise. I think she's changed her introduction from the first copies, but originally um, she introduced the book with these words saying, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on any given day. You can feel the power of that, right? Wow. I want to know what God has to say to, to me personally every day. There's more than the Bible? And so what Sarah Young began to do was journal and, and write. And, and she explains that as she wrote, Jesus began to speak through her and so that her writing are the words of Jesus. And so if you pick up the book, Jesus Calling, and read it, it's written in the first person. It's written from the perspective of Jesus speaking. And it paraphrases some scripture and it sounds really kind of Bible-y, but it's not the Bible. And yet she claims, this is, this is Jesus speaking through me. This is my personal revelation of Jesus for you. Mysticism always starts by saying the Bible is not enough. God's word is insufficient. And it builds from there. My personal revelation, I have, I have more from God that you can hear through me. Very similar practice growing in popularity uh, is called Emmanuel journaling. Right? Just sit down with a pen in hand, express to God your concerns, your trials, your troubles, and then just write. Let your thoughts go. And as you write, you need to know that that's God speaking to you. You're writing out things and your thoughts are God's word to you. But where are you looking? Like, are you looking outside of yourself to, to God's word and what he has said? No, you're looking inside yourself for what you believe, for what you feel. Another one is, is called Lectio Divina. Practice of reading scripture so it starts in a good place and, and, and so it often kind of confuses people. Like, what's wrong with reading the Bible? What a great thing to do. But what you do with Lectio Divina is, is to take a passage of scripture, typically a very small passage, and you just read it over and over and over and repeat it and repeat it until God speaks to you. Until you hear something from God other than what you're reading, other than what's in the text. It actually makes a mockery of the Bible. Reading God's word while saying, God, tell me something else. You might as well be reading Dr. Seuss. And of course, there are many today who would just claim visions and, and words from God. God spoke to me. I have a word for the Lord from the Lord for you. The Lord told me. Paul says, 
Don't be intimidated by that. Don't, don't let them put you down. Don't let those people seemingly disqualify you, make you feel like a lesser Christian because all you have is the Bible. It's so easy to get drawn into. It's so easy to be impressed and enamored and enticed by these things. Feel like this is it. This is something new and fresh and, and living. This is what my Christian life has been missing. There's more. And when I was in college, I was part of a dorm leadership team, and they brought in some listening guru who taught us all kinds of things, uh, how to hear God's voice and how to prophesy. Um, we, had, we had guys talking about how God told them they, they, they wanted to play pony with him, that they, you could kind of ride on God's back, because my daddy never did that with me. I'm going, what? But, but it, was, it was lapped up. It, it took a bunch of Bible college students and just sucked them in. Paul says, don't do it. Mysticism only puffs up. It only puffs up. They look big and impressive on the outside. It looks firm and strong, but there's nothing behind it. There's nothing inside. They're not strong and grown up in Christ. They're puffed up without reason. Like a balloon blown tight, ready to pop. And here's the ironic part. Paul says they're puffed up because of their sensuous mind. Their mind that is set on the, the senses. The translations, uh, other translations use fleshly or unspiritual. The, the Greek word there is sarkos, which just means flesh. The reason they're so caught up in these visions and what they see so puffed up in this false humility is not, as they would like you to think, because they're so uber spiritual. It's actually because they're worldly. It's actually because they value things the same way the world does, not the way God does. They're puffed up because they think like the world. Because they're fleshly, they're unspiritual. They don't actually understand the things of God. And so these supposed visions puff them up. Look at verse 19. The people approach trying to hear from God in this mystical way, looking for visions and signs. They are not holding fast to the head. Who's the head? Kids, somebody tell me, who's the head? No. Ha. More specific. Jesus. Jesus is the head. He's the, the head of the church. We, he talked about it just verses back. And they're not holding firm to Christ. They're moving on for more, for something else. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So that's how God used to speak. Old covenant through the prophets who stood up and said, thus saith the Lord. God spoke through them at different times and in different ways. But contrast, not like it used to be, something new. But in these last days, he's spoken to us, has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. God used to speak in various ways at various times, but now in these last days, we have the full, completed 
living word of God who came, who has been recorded for us. He has spoken in one way. God has spoken by his son. We have the revelation of who he is. The head in Christ, recorded for us by the apostles, written down in his word. That's why Ephesians 2.20, Paul says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We're not building with apostles and prophets. It's our foundation. It's where we started. It's set. You don't put new foundation again halfway up. That's why the Bible ends with John, the last of the apostles, writing the last book of the Bible, saying, Revelation 22, 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. You notice he switches. Um, he says first that, that um, no one can add to the prophecy of this book. So there's the prophecy which is contained in the book, and no one can take away from the book which is this prophecy. And so you can't add to prophecy and you can't take away from the book. It's set. God's word to us is complete. It's finished. Now, it's living and active. It continues to, to work in us, to convict us of, of sin, to teach, to correct, to comfort. The Holy Spirit is alive and well and, and bringing God's word to bear and transforming lives but there's nothing more to add. It's there. And let's be clear, even in the Old Testament times, even when God was speaking in various ways through at different times, God harshly condemns those who called themselves prophets but looked internally, prophesied according to what they felt. Jeremiah 23, 26, how long, Shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy deceit from their own heart? And that theme runs through, uh, I think, about 20, chapter 21 through 23, talking about the prophets in their own heart and people speaking from their own heart. It's what they feel, and it's a lie. It's common today for people to say, I have a burden from the Lord for you. God's just laid this on my heart. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 23. It's not going to be up on the screen. Verses 33 to 40, Jeremiah 23, just listen. When one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. As for the prophet, the priest, or the one of the people who says, the burden of the Lord, I will punish that man and his household. Thus you will say, everyone to his neighbor and everyone to his brother, what has the Lord answered? What has the Lord spoken? But the burden of the Lord you shall not mention anymore. For the burden is every man's own word, and you pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. Thus you shall say to the prophet, what has the Lord answered you? What has the Lord spoken? 
But if you say the burden of the Lord, thus says the Lord, because you have said these words, the burden of the Lord, when I sent you saying, you shall not say the burden of the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will surely lift you up and cast you away from my presence, you and the city that I gave you to, gave to your fathers. And I will bring upon you everlasting reproach and perpetual shame, which shall not be forgotten. That's harsh. That's brutal. Now, We need to temper this a little bit. Jeremiah's day, these were prophets who put themselves over. Like, I don't want you to, someone to come to you and say, I think the Lord wants me to tell you this. And you just, you're the burden of the Lord. Hold on. This is for like the the Todd Whites and the Benny Hins and those who are standing publicly and saying, this is what God says. This rebuke lands on that level. But this matters. The Lord says, if someone comes to you saying, I have a burden from the Lord, I feel like God says this. You should say to them, no. What has the Lord spoken? Let's not talk in vague and mushy terms that may or may not be correct, that might be true to some level of detail or maybe not. I don't know what you feel in your heart about God. What has God answered? What has God spoken? And for us today, that means give me God's word. Show me in black and white. Show me chapter and verse. Let's go to the Bible together. And then there's no question. There's no doubt whether it's authoritative. Again, be kind. And and I just want to challenge you. That person might be very sincere. They might be an absolute true, loving the Lord, faithful believer, they might be 100% biblical and right in what they're about to say and the Holy Spirit may have even sent them to you to say it. But if that's the case, let's open God's word. Let's look at his truth together. Don't don't root the authority of what is said in the, the treacherous heart and dubious feelings of, of man but in the true, sufficient, inerrant word of God. That's our foundation. That's where we stand. So Paul says, reject this this legalism, this heaping on of extra laws, and reject this this mysticism, this I feel the Lord. What has God said? Stick to his word, and in so doing, we remain in Christ. We remain in Christ. Verse 19 Paul switches from the negative to the positive. He says, speaking of of those who are puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, is not holding fast to the head. And then he switches positive. From whom? From the head. The whole body, that's the church, is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So, Get the picture. Those who are running after legalism, they're chasing shadows. Those who are holding on to mysticism, they're, they're puffed up by an by a unspiritual mind. But those who are holding fast to Christ grow with a growth that is from God. That's what we want. That's what we're after. The growth from God. Now notice the implication to that statement there is a kind of growth that is not from God. 
Not all growth is godly growth. It's possible to see a church or a believer who appears to be growing. They have life. They appear to have everything going well. There's there's a moralistic exterior. Everything's moving forward, but it not actually be from God. We don't want that. We don't want that as a church. I mean, we could could tickle the ears and, and fill the pews. We could manipulate people's emotions, exert power and influence. I could tell you I had a, I had a vision this morning and, and you just need to empty your bank account into Redemption Church. I could tell you I have some new laws for you. Let me write out the list. You need to obey these laws or you don't have Christ. It might actually change people's lives. Right? Like people might actually give and we could just buy this building and give it a total facelift and people would come and and people would be living according to these new laws and, and wow, visibly that looks great. But it's not a growth from God. It's not a growth holding to the head, which is Christ. Notice also the growth that is from God. It's not a growth that comes through forward thinking, Right? It's not a growth that comes through current modern strategies, new exciting revelations. It's not characterized by what is hip and flashy and contemporary. The growth from God comes to those who hold fast. They're looking back. They're standing still. They're standing firm where they were. They're holding fast. Be ready for that accusation. It's going to come. Your church is just stuffy. You just don't know what to do with all this new stuff. You're missing out. You're outdated. You don't have new insights and revelation. You don't have the new tactics, the new way of doing things. You're you're missing out. You're stuck in the past. Let's just be honest here for a second. Just own this. That kind of growth, the growth from God, it looks boring sometimes. Not if you have eyes to see what's actually going on, but from the outside, it's not going to impress the world. The town of Olds is not going to say, wow, look at that sanctification happening. It's not going to happen. It will not impress those who are fleshly minded. There's no, there's no smoke machine. There's no excitement and, and flair. And we say, well, we're not stuck in the past, but we are stuck on Christ. And yes, the old Christ, the original Christ. The one revealed in God's completed and inherent word. And from him we are not moving. Speaking of Christ in this context, uh, commentator William Hendrickson wrote this. The church need not and must not look for any other source of strength to overcome sin or to increase in knowledge or virtue or joy. Nothing other than Christ. We ought not look anywhere else. It's all in him. He is what we need. Holding fast to Jesus. Look back at at verse 19. Holding fast to Jesus, our souls are fed. We're fed. It says we're we're nourished in him. 2 Peter 1, 3 says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him. The knowledge of Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence. In Jesus, in knowing him, we have everything we need for life and godliness. And we're nourished, we're, we're fed, we're built up, we're, we're strengthened. 
and then holding fast to Jesus, we're united. We're knit together. So legalism is about my laws and my rules. Mysticism is about my personal experience and my revelation. They necessarily divide. They put up walls between us. They create wedges. Um, they, they, they create these authority hierarchies. There's a power imbalance. Holding fast to Christ unites us. We come together under God's word. We come together in him. He is our head. Yes, it, it does divide. It divides us from those who refuse to hold fast to Christ. But to those of us who are willing to submit ourselves fully to him, we're united. And we're nourished in him and we're knit together in that. Holding fast to Christ, we grow. We grow. We continue to move towards that great and glorious finish line, the, the Olympic heavenly gold medal. The Christian life is a race. And here we are, running it. Some of us have a long way to go. Some of us might be at the, the very finish line. We have no idea. But we're all running. And all of us are going to hear different voices. Don't let it distract you. Don't let anyone judge you or disqualify you. Don't listen to those voices calling out from behind. Fix your eyes on Christ. Revealed in Scripture. Keep running that race. Focus on the gospel. Jesus is enough. In him, in the, the simple gospel, we have fullness. We have new life. That's what we long for, Redemption Church. More of Christ. More holding firmly to him. More submitting completely to him. More walking closely with him. And in that more of the growth in us that is from God and to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is trustworthy and true. Thank you that it convicts and corrects us. But thank you most of all that it reveals Christ to us, that in your word, um, in your written word, we see your living word. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on him. God, you know the things that pull on us. You know how prone we are to, to mysticism, to legalism. Lord, would you break that down in us? Would you help us to hold firm to Christ as our head, to stand on him? Not to, not to feel the, the, the weight of these distractions, but to confidently stand firm in Christ. And Lord, would you grow us in that? We don't care if it's a growth that impresses the world. We want the growth that, that impresses you. Growth in sanctification. Growth in, in a slow and steady faithfulness. Growth in loving our brothers and sisters. Lord, would you grow us as a church rooted firmly in Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name.